many elements of the following program will have unbelievably bad, well, let's say, <laughs> overtones for those of you who are, well, sensitive. Please, will you, Herb? One, two, three, four. And tonight we take great pride in our special salute to man's eternal struggle to better his lot. Yes, tonight we salute progress, man's battle against the inevitable. Struggling, battling, preparing the way, chopping through the undergrowth. Hacking, building pyramids, flying high against the sun. Man charges on. Yeah, thank you, Herbert. <laughs> you know, speaking of man charging on, did you see the piece from London? I'll tell you, it's it's, it's getting it's getting out of hand in England. Uh, would you listen to this for a minute, Herb, please? There's a UPI note from London. It says uh, some daredevils go over Niagara Falls in barrels. But um, Paul Wills, you ready for this? Paul Wills puts ferrets down his trousers. You know what a ferret is? Okay. Wills, 29, kept two of the vicious, sharp-toothed, weasel-like rodents down his pants for two minutes recently, claiming a world record for the unprecedented feat. <laughs> There's another world record holder. Let's salute him. Once again, the world of sports hails another champion. Anybody that can put two ferrets down his pants for two minutes deserves at least a small whistle. Yeah. And so another world record has fallen. Cut it out now. Hey. Hold it, hold it. Hold it. Stop it. Anyways, I mean, you can, you know, saluting a guy is one thing, but going totally ape is another. My God, you know, time is of the essence here. You know, do uh, you want to hear how this guy did it, though? What does this remind you of? I mean, the first thing I, I thought of when when uh, I heard, you know, this this what this guy did, I was reminded of something. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll, I'll just, just read it to you and let you know what what happened. Have you ever read the, uh, the the Guinness Book of Records? Well, you know that cockamamie book that tells that, the, you know, some guy in New South Wales holds the record for eating uh, the most number of hard-boiled eggs in 10 minutes. You know, that kind of fantastic trivia. But anyway, uh, he said that the, the Guinness Book of Records claimed now that, that this guy's record, which is two minutes keeping two ferrets down your pants... <laughs> We'll go into the 1973 edition, providing that nobody else keeps any ferrets down in their pants longer than two minutes between now and then. So if any of you would like to break the record before the new one is even published, there's your chance. Now, I don't know where you're going to get a couple of ferrets. Right from so oh, there's a plenty of them running around here at Times Square. I mean, I mean, listen, I've even worked for half a dozen in my time. Oh, yeah, sharp teeth, evil little creatures, you know. But here's the story. Wills, a brawny textile machinist dropped a pair of ferrets down his trousers before a large crowd of customers and television cameras. 
at the Bassett Arms in his hometown of Camburn in Cornwall. Had a TV covered it. This is the kind of stuff that the wide, wide world of sports, you know, brought to you by Rune Arledge. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't that be a great sporting event? <laughs> you get this guy and he drops a couple of rats down his pants. <laughs> and the whole point is how long can he keep him down there until he eat him up or he flips? Now, remember, they're in his pants, friends, not his shirt, his pants. His wife winced. Other women in the audience gasped and giggled. And the men shuddered, and some of them hid under chairs as the frantic ferrets squirmed to get out of his pants, squeaking and yelling and biting fiendishly all the time. Ah! What an awful thought. After two minutes of excruciating pain, Wills wiped his brow with relief and said that during the two minutes timed by a man with a stopwatch, the ferrets bit through his trousers, bit him in many different places, many places which you will not even discuss. But he says, my God, that they bite, conforming to his own set of rules that no protective clothing be worn other than that which you would ordinarily wear, you know, jockey shorts and stuff like that. Wills was clad in simple underpants, loose-fitting trousers secured with twine to keep the ferrets from falling out. Wills, who keeps ferrets to ferret out rabbits from burrows near his home, said he had to have three stitches in his hand when one of them bit him just simply while he was practicing. Poor <laughs> they're mean little mothers. Quote here, I must quote his wife. She says, if it, had, if it had been anything other than his fingers, I don't know what I would have done, said his wife Judith. <laughs> Will said he began putting ferrets down his pants a year ago when his workmates dared him to do it. And he's gotten to kind of like it. Like most champions, he throws himself totally into his work. Uh, I went home, I got my ferret. I did it in the company canteen, said Wills. Out of that, the crowd began to like it, and I worked my time up to two minutes. I'm the record holder now, world champ, you know. He also said, my wife doesn't like it at all, but the ferrets kind of like it. Oh, God. All right, hold it, hold it, Herbert, hold it. Hold it, hold it, hold it. That's uh, tonight's sports report. Another sports hero has been born. Now, I'd like to ask you a question. What does that remind you of? You mean you never heard of anybody ever in your life putting something in, you know, in his clothing like that? Who was it who, who uh, put, clo uh, put uh, foxes in their shirts, supposedly? To train them to be tough. And don't tell me that I'm the only classical scholar that happens to be up and around or walking around at this time. Well, I'm, I'm just not going to say any more about that. I'm just going to let that drop because, uh, you know, I like to keep my little knowledge to myself. But you mean you never heard of anybody putting foxes? Oh, boy. I'm telling you. Proust was right. We will all be undone by boobs and knaves. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll just let you think about that. You know, speaking of uh, of ferrets, I'll tell you one thing. If you've never seen a ferret, now, the ferret, of course, is a, there's a lot of animals like ferrets, but I want to tell you something, Ben. I, 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 this is, this is going to be a horror story. So you know mine? Horror story? Right? You ready for a horror story? Get my scary music up there, Herbert. It's it's not that one. You've got it in there. I'll give you a horror story tonight. And while Herb's preparing the horror story, you, we're, we're going to lay a couple of little goodies on you here. You got the Toyota goodie ready? Good. 
don't expect you to remember everything we tell you about the Toyota Corolla 1200 sedan. We don't expect you to remember the manufacturer's suggested retail price, which is $1,956, plus freight local taxes, dealer prep, and options. We don't expect you to remember all the things that are included in the price as standard equipment. Things like front disc brakes, white walls, tinted glass, and a fresh air heater. Things like a four-speed transmission, reclining bucket seats, and nylon carpeting. We don't expect you to remember everything that's included for the $1,956. Just remember our standard equipment list is long, our price is low, and our name is Toyota. And that's enough to remember. Yeah, see your nearby Toyota dealer and see the full line of sedans, hardtops, and station wagons. That's Toyota. Toyota. Price. Nice car. They make nice stuff. Hey, you know, speaking of uh, the mysterious East, that's Toyota. Toyota. Mysterious. The Mandarin House in the village is now celebrating a Chinese New Year with a new informal dinner. And, uh, you know, as you, you probably know about the Chinese fantastic banquet that they have every year. The Chinese, kind of a traditional Chinese kind of a thing. It is. It goes back from like 4,000 years, but they have a special one. Usually it's very expensive, you know. Well, the, the Mandarin House has a new, kind of a new type of, uh, of New Year's feast. This is the year of the rat, you know, <laughs> which is a good year for the Chinese. I think that's a great year. All you can eat for only five ninety five, and it's a real Mandarin feast, and they have such great soups as hot and sour. Now, that's a special soup. It's not hot and sour anything. It's a hot and sour soup. They also have velvet chicken watermelon soup, which is really great. And they have all kinds of spectacular dishes that go along with uh, the Chinese New Year, including Setsuan fish-flavored pork, sweet and sour chicken, shredded spiced beef. But every uh, the high point of this feast, traditionally, of course, is Peking duck, which is one of the great world delicacies. And in fact, uh, the Peking duck is kind of like to the Chinese New Year the way uh, turkey is to our Thanksgiving. It's very traditional. And it's a very expensive dish usually, and it takes days to make it. But everyone ordering the New Year's dinner will have a serving of Peking duck. And the price is just five ninety-five. That's tea and everything, you know. Every night at the Mandarin House in the village, now through Sunday, February the 27th, and, uh, of course, this is a big celebration for New Year. Now, if you don't know where it is, the Mandarin House is in the village, 133 West 13th Street, between 6th and 7th Avenues. That's 133 West 13th Street. Incidentally, uh, there's been a lot of people showing up down there, and they have to prepare this stuff. And this is a special thing due to the fact that so many are going down. The Mandarin House asks that you make reservations before you go down. Just, just take the time to call. Call them at 929-0551. I repeat, that's 929-0551. Of course, that's a New York number. They're down on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the village. Great great restaurant. Uh, speaking of uh, <laughs> the mysterious east, uh, we've got a... <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm just looking at something. I'm sorry. we got our birds here with us tonight. It's a big bird night. And if you have not ordered your spectacular... Hey, I, I, I was going to bring up some great letters. I got about a thousand letters from guys who have been transported into other worlds of ecstasy due to their, you know, due to the flying, their fantastic plastic bird. Now, if you don't know what this bird is, the bird's name actually is Tim. This is his name. I don't know. That's a French cuckoo bird word. But uh, Tim's 
<laughs> Tim is a bird. He's 16 inches across. Don't ask me, Tim, why. I don't know. Can't be named after the guy that invented it. His name is Guy de Roimbeek. So that's hardly Tim. But uh, it took him three years to invent this thing. It's an ornithopter, which is inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's drawings. Beautiful thing. And they have two colors now. Remember, it's a 16-inch wingspan. Both birds are the same, except the color scheme is different. One of them, the flying bird, the regular bird, is orange and brown and gold. It's beautiful. It looks like the da Vinci drawings. The other one is a beautiful white one with gold uh, highlights. It's a kind of a peace-type dove. So you can choose your bird, and you... <laughs> <laughs> That's a crazy sound. Uh, you'll have to decide, though. It does. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have to choose your bird, friends. You have to decide whether you want a white dove or a yellow bird. And the price is three ninety-eight per each. New York State residents add the taxes, and it comes postage paid. And you send a check or money order to Flying Bird. Tell them what color you want, white or yellow. Flying Bird, Department S, Post Office Box 1909. Grand Central Station, New York, New York. That's enough bird stuff for tonight. I've had plenty of bird stuff all over my windshield. This is WOR speaking of bird stuff. WOR, New York. Well, we, we run more to the chicken variety here. But that's it's exciting. You get used to that. <laughs> I don't mind that. One more commercial here. Uh, it's for Book Find Club. And they say, I'm reading here, the only way to judge book clubs is by their list of titles. Well, that's certainly true. The mass book clubs feature books that appeal to the masses, and you're not one of them. The Book Find Club seeks out only the best of contemporary fiction and nonfiction, like The Game of the Foxes by Ladislas Farago, Uncommon Sense by James McGregor Burns, Charles de Gaulle's Memoirs of Hope, and so forth. It's an interesting book club which uh, features only fine-type stuff, whatever that may be. Uh, so if you'd like to find out about this club, call them at TN71441. That's TN. What does TN stand for? It sounds like tinny. TN71441. As a book find member, you're obliged to purchase just two more books in a whole year. So find out about it. Call them at TN71441 now or send your name and address. No dough, no money. That's the goody kind. To book find, that's the kind that gets you into trouble. Uh, to Book Find Club, WOR, New York, 10018. You know, can you imagine a guy, an obituary? Have you ever noticed obituaries? They always include the clubs that a guy belonged to at the end. See, he belonged to the uh, Book of the Month Club, the Little Orphan Annie Secret Society. And uh, he was also a member of the famous Diners Club. He, uh, <laughs> these great clubs, you know, they always have these clubs... You know, I, I thought of a fantasy one time. I almost thought of writing the story of, of, the, of the diners club having a meeting. You know, all these, and they have this elegant, it's an old burned-out Howard Johnson, see, and they, they, that's, their, that's where their meeting club is held. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, what are you going to do? So uh, I could just see them sitting around there, you know, and they're talking about great motels. They're, they're having a, because, you know, all these uh, world meeting of clubs always involve seminars. You can't have a club unless you have a seminar, very important type seminar. I went to a, I'm a ham, you know, and I went to an amateur radio opera, and I went to a ham seminar. I see it, man. I see it there. You see, mine's up on the roof now. One of the boys is using it up there. So uh, I went to this uh, ham meeting. Instead of the hams doing what they should do, you know, at a, hey, Herb, I'm talking about ham radio. You're missing it. I'm, I'm talking about it on the air here. And I said, I went to this, this ham meeting here recently up in New England, and instead of the hams doing what hams should do, you know, sitting around getting drunk and 
drinking bad wine and yelling and, and, uh, and uh, you know, pinching each other's wives and all that stuff. They have seminars. And invariably, there's two or three very serious guys who give, get up and give a very long lecture that involves uh, differential equations. And uh, they always wear gray suits, and these are the kind of guys with the gray, dark gray ties and short hair. And they get all excited, and they talk long. And all the rest of the hams are slowly sinking under their seats, see? And uh, they wind up in the bar, you know. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, uh, all clubs have to have that. And so with my meeting, my proposed meeting of the diner's club, naturally we'd have to have a seminar where uh, a world-renowned expert gets up and talks about, about, uh, about really creative motels he stayed in. Of course, that would be very important to a diner's club member. And then we'd have to have a featured address. As you know, boys, every club has to have a, a, a celebrity who comes who addresses them. Can you imagine the diner's club having a meeting and the featured address this year at the national meeting of the diner's club is Howard Johnson himself. <laughs> and, of course, he's the patron saint of credit card club holders, and he arrives and he addresses them. And a wonderful evening was had by all. And, of course, naturally, they all put it on their credit card when they leave. And, uh, and, and, and there would be a lifetime member. You know, it's very important in clubs to honor various members. That's important. And so one member who, uh, the first time in the history of Diners Club, he has actually patronized every organization in the Diners Club handbook in the entire world. He's got them all authenticated which, of course, is above and beyond the call of Diners Club credit card duty. And he's a great member. He goes back 40 years, you know. And he is presented with a lifetime gold Diners Club card, which uh, is, a, is an honorary card. He's the only holder of this. And uh, <laughs> you can see this old doddering guy up there. Like the day I went to a ham, ham fest, and they gave some poor doddering old ham an award for the fact that he had been a ham for 50 years. It's been 50 years, seems so. Uh, he's up there, you know, this this old doddering man. He's standing up, and you can just see the winds of Marconi blowing through his head. Yeah, you can just, you know, he's still there. Somehow, there's a great roaring spark gap in his in his uh, in his world, and all the hams are sitting up there looking at him. See, he's been a ham for 50 years, and the the dumb clod that was up there giving him the prize, or the, you know, the award, says, uh, "Well." Uh, uh, Big Charlie, of course, that's his name on the band. Well, Big Charlie, uh, what uh, what do you remember out of your 50 years of being a ham? What most do you remember? And Charlie looked, there was a kind of a funny look on his face, and, and you could just see instantly nothing. That was the secret. He remembered nothing of it. It was just 50 long years of sort of fooling around. <laughs> and he sort of shrugged his shoulders. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. One time it rained. I remember that. And, uh, of course, everybody done gave him a big round of applause, and, and he dotted off the stand with his 50-year uh, certificate and his uh, lifetime pass to the all-ARRL ham fests. And uh, it was kind of a touching ceremony. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the, whole, the whole club syndrome itself is interesting. I, I, uh, I, I was invited the other day to... I'm a pilot, see, a private pilot. And they have all kinds of clubs, you know, private pilots. I was invited the other day to attend the, the wedding of two private pilots, who flew to the wedding in their own planes from different directions. And they were to be married in a bonanza of their own choosing, I presume. And it was a bonanza suitably decorated, you know, for the occasion. It had tin cans hanging on the tail and all that stuff. You know, just married, written all over the 
all over the <laughs> the, the rudder, and, you know, all kinds of groovy little stuff. They were throwing rice into the into the engine ducts and stuff. So anyway, the idea of them of them getting married and and flying into a hangar was kind of touching, see, and and they were. I think symbolically, it was very touching. They were symbolically married by this reverend, who also happened to be a flight instructor, who taught them to fly. And uh, I imagine it was a little thriller at the moment when he says, "In sickness or in health, you, uh, that that brought up visions of uncontrolled fall-offs on a stall." Uh, which, uh, <laughs> you know, so they were they were married in a hangar, and uh, they the. Kind of, a, I thought it was kind of fitting that, uh, in spite of the fact that they were being married in this hangar, since uh, you know the uh, the work must go on. There were three mechanics working all the way through their wedding. They were overhauling a a Lycoming 108 in the corner there, and they were being paid by the hour. And they weren't going to stop for no damn wedding, so they just kept right on grinding the valves. And uh, it was a touching wedding. Now I can imagine that crowd, uh, you know, 25 years from now, trying to explain that to their kids. That. Uh, <laughs> And, well, I'll say it seems the right thing to do at the time. I, well, you know, me and Myrtle at that time, you know, I was flying this 115. She, and of course, the kids looking at him with this this burning look of of, of loathing, because uh, yeah, well, because by that time, see, everything will have changed. People have different attitudes, and uh, it's like the time in my neighborhood when I was a kid, a little kid, see, and uh, we had this vacant lot, and uh, of course, you see, the the I say the nuttiness of man is absolutely. Unlimited. That uh, that you will you right now we're this day just look around you. This is a certain day. See, there will never be another day like this. This is one day in your life. Well, you at this point do not even have the faintest suspicion of what nuttiness you will hear about tomorrow. It will transcend what you heard about today. That is a guarantee. Guarantee. Now, as, as a matter of fact, what about the guy that puts the ferrets in his pants? And he holds the world record two minutes of keeping ferrets in his pants, biting and, and uh, ripping and tearing. Of course, now he speaks in a very, very high voice. And uh, he tends now to buy pink shirts, and he has these tinfoil shoes now, but he does hold the record. Now, <laughs> well, it's not, I don't make the news. I only report it, gang. I don't, don't blame me, for God's sakes. You know... It's a fact, though. I just say it's going to transcend whatever you know today. Now, I'm a kid. See, there's a vacant lot there, all right? Okay. One day, for no reason at all, they put up a platform out this vacant lot. Everybody's standing around and figure they're putting up a new gas station or something. They're putting up this wood out there. See, it's just a vacant lot, you know? Or don't you know what a vacant lot is? They don't have vacant lots. But they do in Jersey. I'll tell you plenty of them. They call them the meadows, you know? So, uh, nevertheless, there's a vacant lot. Just, a, you know, a lot of weeds and old tires and jazz. And, uh... There was also a part of this vacant lot where they had an underground fire. And people used to, you know, kids used to say, if you walked across this vacant lot, a lot of times a kid would be lost, you know, forever. He'd just get swallowed up and gone. Some of those kids deserved it, but nevertheless, <laughs> there was this myth, see. But one day, they started to build a platform. Well, people walking by, and they figured they're putting up a new, you know, gimmick, gas station, food stand, who knows, you know. Well, it began to get higher and higher until all of a sudden, it ain't, it ain't no platform anymore. It's a tower. And he topped it off at about maybe 40 or 50 feet. It was a tower. It's just a lattice tower made out of, you know, two-by-fours and stuff. And on the top of it, they put a pole. pole stuck up. It looked like, uh, you know, just a pole sticking up out of this tower. had a ladder going up the side of it. And the pole was about, uh, oh, I'd guess, 40 or 50 feet high. And on top of the pole, they put a flat platform with a railing around it. Well, one day... <laughs> 
There was a lot of yelling and hollering. And this flagpole sitter climbed up the top of the pole and sat up there. Now, you're not interested in this, but I'll tell you who it was. It was, it was Andy Paswinski's uncle. It was a famous flagpole sitter. <laughs> His name was Stanley Stosh. Famous flagpole. Yeah, everybody knew there's Stosh sitting up there on the top of that thing up there, see? And they put a, they put a big sign on the, on the front of his platform. It said, an attempt will be made to break the world's flagpole sitting record. Stosh Paswinski is going to be the great world's flagpole. So everybody walked past, and at first they cheered. And, you know, there was a big thing. People threw fruit up there and quarters and stuff, whatever they could get. And Stosh is sitting up there. Well, now, see, a thing, a sight like this when you're a kid will influence you. I don't think Mailer ever saw anything like that, Norman Mailer. He really believes mankind's serious. He does. I suspect so does Philip Roth. And certainly Kurt Vonnegut does. <laughs> I mean, that is only his people are serious. All the rest of them are fools and knaves. But nevertheless, uh, you can't ever take a serious view of mankind when, when, you, when you look out of your bedroom window every morning and see Stosh Paswinski sitting on top of a pole. And every day they would change the sign. Like one day it says 18 consecutive days. Then they would take it down and have 19 consecutive days. He sat up there at night. Okay? Well, about halfway through this thing, people totally lost interest. Nobody looked at him anymore. He just kept sitting up there, though. And uh, once in a while somebody would come by and say, Hi, Stosh, and he'd look down. And uh, they changed the sign, though, every day, his, his confederates. And so it got to be like he's up there 23 days. And now nobody is coming and throwing nickels which is, of course, what flagpole sitting is about, nickels. So then when that happened, there was a big announcement made. They had a band out there. Stosh Paswinski is getting married on the, on the flagpole. Okay. At which point uh, the band showed up. It was Sunday. Everybody came out in the neighborhood, and this chick came around, some Polish chick came around there. Yeah, uh, yeah well, you know, her name was Josephine Kublik. So uh, Josephine showed up. I remember the name. It was emblazoned in my mind because every morning then I would see the sign out there, Josephine Kublik and Stosh Paswinski now are a duo flagpole sitting team. Reminds you a little of the roller derby, doesn't it? So uh, <laughs> isn't it amazing there are people who take the roller derby seriously? Well, I suppose they're the same people that take the Jets seriously, too. So, you know, what, what are you going to do? But uh, nevertheless, they got married up on top of the flagpole, and they had people stood around through rice. My old man throwing rice at him, you know? And he said, hey, you know, right for Stash, throwing that <laughs> rice up to the top of his thing. So they were married. Okay. Well, it was kind of a sad thing, actually. They got married up there, and they were up there maybe a week later. And again, interest flagged considerably. And one night, no announcement made. Stash and Kubelik and the whole crowd disappeared into the night and left the platform there. They never showed up again. That was it. It was all over. And uh, the platform, nothing is worse, nothing is sadder, nothing is more poignant than to see the remains of the blasted dreams of mankind. To see a deserted flagpole with the tattered remnants of a banner that reads, record-breaking attempt being made here. <laughs> so for weeks, that thing stood in the, in the yard. Of course, kids started to climb up on it. I remember Schwartz, he made his own attempt, you know, to, to set the record for the fourth grade. You know, he sat up there for 12 minutes. Of course, he had bad kidneys, so that was about as far as he went. And uh, <laughs> and it was a high wind, and he could have caused a lot of excitement in the neighborhood. And he just, you know, well, uh, yeah. So uh, nonetheless, this this kind of thing of this, this, uh, this let's put it this way, this Dildock wedding is always with us. Now, the greatest wedding that I've ever attended, 
Now, I want you to listen to this. This is a sickening scene. I'm a ham, you know, amateur. Now, a lot of you people don't know what amateur radio operators are. You think they're CBers, and that's not at all. Totally different breed. They are dedicated. They are as dedicated as any guy that gets hung on an Eastern religion. In fact, more so. Because it's lifelong. Guys that get hung on various Krishna-type things, that's good for about eight months, and then they usually switch to taffy apples, and, you know, they, <laughs> they wind up... Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a whole ba- other bag. But uh, there is a certain religiosity to it. It's a madness. Well, I am on, at that time, 75. Now, any of you hams know 75, right? It's a local band, by and large, right? And everybody would sit around every Sunday and uh, local ride you, which means I'd come on here. I had about 15 watts on 75, and I had a wire that went out to the garage. And, I, you know, a local rag shoe was about as best I could ever do. So uh, this was big time for me, and I was about 15. So every Sunday I would be on. All these official hams would be on. The guys named Roy and at the Al. There's always a guy. There's invariably a guy named Doc. Invariably. Al, Roy, Doc, Carl, uh, various types. And they had these deep voices, and they sit around and talk on, on 75. And they, they would... Never, never leave. They're hours. You, you tune on 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, anytime. These same guys are all there. Well, one Sunday, I'm sitting there on the band. It's a gigantic round table, about 1,200 guys named Doc all talking to each other. Well, old man, fine. Uh, it's a great, uh, just fine. Uh, and the whole gang out there, yeah. Uh, this is uh, Fred, that W9JZA. And I, I'll tell you, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, you guys, uh, Al, you keep fading in and out. I don't know what it is. It must be, you know, constant talk like that. So one of the guys says to me, turns it over to me, and he says, Hey, he said, uh, are you are you going to be in on the uh, the ceremony Saturday? I said, What? The ceremony? You know, because uh, I went to school a lot, so I had to miss often as many as an hour and a half on that continual roundtable, which went on for over five, six, maybe ten centuries straight. So I would have to miss certain parts of it. Now, with new developments on FM, guys can do it all the time in the John anywhere. They sit there and they talk continually in the tunnel the whole bit, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, and I don't know what the ceremony is, see. So I said, uh, ceremony? He said, yeah. He said, didn't you hear about Al? I said, Al? Al what? He said, you mean you don't know about Alan Rose? And I said, Alan Rose? What do you mean? Ceremony. He's still getting married on the band Saturday. I said, what? He says, yeah. Don't you, don't you know that, that, that Doc's marrying him? Doc. Doc was a reverend. See, he was Dr. So-and-so down at the Presbyterian Fourth Reform something, see, a couple of miles away, see, and he was always on a band. I said, Doc is marrying Alan Rose? He said, yeah. I said, where? He says, on the band. I said, on the band? He says, yeah, on the band. Well, now, I'll have to explain to you that, that Al and Rose, Al was... You know, he was a, a ham that was on the air all the time, 24 hours a day. You would throw the switch. I don't know what he did. Well, as a matter of fact, there was rumors around that uh, he was a wastrel, that uh, he, was a, he, was, he was like a remittance man, and his family had done some terrible thing someplace, and they had, they had just given him a remittance to stay on 75 and stay out of their hair for the rest of their life. And uh, he was on all the time, constantly. Well, Rose was the only YL that anybody ever heard on a band around there. See, and of course, being a YL, for you don't, don't know what a YL is, it's a young lady in ham parlance. Uh, she was 
considered extremely sexy merely because she was a female. See, so <laughs> so Al and Rose, of course, she was always guys were always trying to talk to her, and Al Al was just there all the time, and Rose was on the band once in a while. Everybody talked. Nobody had met each other. Remember, that's important. Nobody had met each other. They only talked to each other. I had never met Al, never met Rose. I had never met Doc. But we were old, old, old friends. We talked for endless hours on the air. And Al and Rose were now getting married in a band. Well, I, I can't describe to you the, 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 the excitement that swept 75. Of course, uh, it, it began to move from ham to ham. Uh, one ham would tell another ham, boy, be sure to listen at 11 o'clock, 75, on 39.95, because Al and Rose are getting married. Well, this this went all over the Middle West. You know, the hams could hear them in Iowa and places like Ohio, and, and everybody was talking about the big wedding that's going to take place on 75, on 39.95 and 11 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. Well, as it got closer... I began to hear tidbits about it, you know, bits of, you know, real, real information, like uh, that uh, there was a guy named Carl who was always on the band. He's going to be the best man. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he's going to be the best man, and Doc is going to come in. They're going to have music. They were going to actually have music. Oh, yeah, very official, see. So uh, as the day got closer, all the hams, I mean, they canceled everything for that whole weekend, you know, everybody, they want to hear the, 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 the wedding, it's good, and, they're, and they're part of it, you see, they're part of the wedding party, they're, it's, a, it's a vast, unseen congregation, all sitting out there next to their columns, and, uh, you know, all sitting next <laughs> to, the, to their rig, waiting for the big moment. Well, that Saturday morning, I get up, and, and, you know, all, and I, I tune on the rigs, it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. And I hear all these guys talking about it. You know, just everywhere. You just up and down a band. You hear guys talking about the big marriage between Al and Rose, which is going to happen at, at eleven o'clock, and Doc is going to officiate. And and they didn't appear on a band. Well, after all, you know, it's it's a true wedding, and it's a very very traditional. As you know, that the bride and groom do not appear at the church two hours before the wedding and run around up and down the pews and say hello to the people. Right? They don't do this. They appear suddenly, very dramatically, out of the back of the church. You've been to a wedding, haven't you? Well, Al and Rose are not on a band, nor is Doc. But the entire congregation is. <laughs> They're all, all talking around, you see. And sure enough, at five minutes before 11, the band got so silent, everybody threw the transmitters off the air. It was like just sudden, fantastic, unbelievable silence fell over the band. Just like everybody, it's like in Yankee Stadium. Suddenly, everybody is quiet. There's a dead silence. Not a sound. And everybody's tuned to 39.95, which was the frequency on 75 where the ceremony was about to take place. Well, at exactly 11 o'clock, you could hear this carrier come on on 39.95. Boom. Well, I knew the carrier sound very well. It was Doc's carrier. It was the it was the minister. I knew his sound because he had a slight hum and then it was. I could tell by the the the, the, uh, the the we knew his signal very well, especially you could read it by the S sign and all. Boom! He comes on. I said, "Oh, there's Doc." And sure enough, you could hear this transcribed organ come on, and it was it was playing it was playing just just uh, this beautiful hymn. It's bum 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 bum, and the organ is playing, and then it fades down. 
And Doc, with a totally different voice, up to this point he's been a ham. Now he is working. He is he is Doc. You know, he is the doctor. He is Reverend uh, Charles M. Uh, Rotemeyer, or whatever his name was. And he is now working. And he says, friends, we have gathered today here in this place on this sacred frequency on the dial. We have gathered here today to join in holy med- wedlock two close friends, two people that all of us have known and loved for many, many long hours on the band. We are going to join today in holy wedlock Al. All of you know Al Sakonovic. Al Sakonovic is going to take as his bride Rosie Warshawski of 1422 East 133rd Street in Roseland, Illinois. And I'd like to say, as part of this ceremony, a few personal words. That I have rarely known two young people so fitted and so beautifully matched and so well-equipped to responsibly walk into the sacred groves of the Sea of Matrimony and therefore, and thenceforth to be joined forever and to not be sundered aside by the hand of man. All of us know Al well. We all know Rosie. And I want all of you now at this point to bow your head in silent prayer for these two young people who are about to walk into the sacred, God-created groves of matrimony. And all of us out there in the band, they're bowing our heads in front of our in front of our uh, our uh, Collins receivers and our front of our helicrafters. And then Doc, who was a fantastic, uh, obviously very theatrical reverend, you could hear coming behind him, he brought up, he had a turntable, you could hear the bum, 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 it sounded like the Westminster organ playing in the abbey. You could hear it echoing from the naves. It echoed throughout the entire band. You had this sense that half of the Midwest was listening. Millions of hams were tuning in. It was a fantastic moment. And then Al said, and now, by the power vested in me, by the state of Illinois, and by the power invested in me, as an ordained minister of the word of God in the Presbyterian Church, I now join you, Al, and you, Rosie, in holy matrimony. But before we join these two young people, are there anyone in the congregation who has any reason whatsoever that these two shall not be joined in holy matrimony? If so, will you please speak up or forever hold your peace? And he waited. Not one single transmitter came on in objection. And I wait. I thought there might be some guy, you know, some sorehead in Iowa, says, I know that Al's a me. You know, not at all. Dead silence. And he said, and now will the best man please, will the best man please make his presence known? And will he please step forward? Will the best man, Carl, please come on the band at 39 
97. And please, may we hear his carrier. Is he present? And sure enough, I switched over to 97, which was two KC away. You hear, Kung, and you hear, Al, so this is, uh, this is Carl. I'm here, and I'm waiting. I'm standing by, and zap, his carrier goes off. And then we switch back to 39.95, and the reverend says, Thank you very much, Carl. And now, do you, Rosie, take Al for your lawfully wedded husband to hold and to keep in sickness or in health? And on 39.97, you hear this carrier. It's Rosie's carrier. Come on, she says, I do. And then she switched off, and then... The reverend comes back on and he says, And do you, Al, take Rosie for your lawful wedded wife to hold and to keep in sustenance and in sickness and in health, to protect and to defend and to honor for as long as you shall live? We switched over. I do. You could hear Al quivering. He had, a, by the way, a little a, a little uh, heterodyne. I don't know where he was picking it up. And then maybe it was nervousness. And then he switched back and he says, And I now pronounce... You, Rosie, and you, Al, I pronounce you man and wife. And with that, you could hear this organ come up. Bum, 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 And the whole band is flipping. With that, instantly, thousands of carriers come on and they're all cheering. Hey, Al, hey, why, whoopee. And for about two hours, it was an unbridled party uh, at 39.95 all the fans cheering and yelling <laughs> now how do you like that for a strange incident the time that Al and Rosie got married on 39.95 became a legend in ham circles and many hams who never heard it claim they do they did you know it's like the it's like the Martian broadcast by Orson Welles I mean if he had the rating of all the people who claimed they heard they heard it he would probably have almost the entire population of the United States. <laughs> now, the question I ask, can you imagine Al and Rosie trying to explain that to their kids later on, that they got married on New York. Stay tuned for Lester Smith in the news.